The healthiest and holiest traditions are always rooted in a sense of deep and abiding love. Sometimes we forget that. That's why we need Joseph at Christmas. Because Joseph reminds us that the truest and deepest tradition has very little to do with the right carols or the right color lights. That's the Reverend Jenny McDevitt, and today she shares a life-giving message of Advent faith called Joseph, a Higher Righteousness of Love. I'm Peter Wallace. It's Day One. Welcome to Day One the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's historic Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. Now to introduce this week's preacher, here's our host, Peter Wallace. Thank you, Sherry. Today on Day One, we're honored to welcome the Reverend Jenny McDevitt, Senior Pastor of Shandon Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina, where she has served since May of 2020. Prior to that, she was Senior Pastor of Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City and earlier served as Pastor of Pastoral Care at Village Presbyterian Church outside Kansas City. Jenny earned her undergraduate degree in creative writing from Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio, and her Master of Divinity from Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. Jenny, welcome to Day One, and a blessed Advent to you. And to you, and thanks for having me. You were with us more than three years ago, but in the meantime, you've made a major ministry change, accepting the call as Senior Pastor of Shandon Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. So what was it about the church and its people there that that drew you to make that move from New York to South Carolina? It was definitely the people. Um, From my first conversation with the search committee, I was just completely connected with them and appreciated the ease with which they clearly loved one another and Mm -hmm. loved their church. And it wasn't necessarily something I expected, but it was also very clear when the Spirit was moving. Mm. Of course, that whole process happened in the midst of the pandemic pretty early on. You were self-quarantining in New York, I understand, before you moved. How did that impact the process and beginning your ministry there? It is not the way I would recommend beginning a new <laughs> ministry at all. For about a year and a half, maybe maybe a little bit more, I did not meet church members in <laughs> right. particularly significant ways. I preached to an empty sanctuary where I couldn't even envision who might Mm. normally be sitting there. I met a lot of people on Zoom. Mm. I scheduled a lot of Zoom coffee introductions with me, and we did a lot of ministry in our parking lot. Eventually, we were able to do some things outdoors. So it was a very gradual introduction Mm. to Shandon (laughs) and the people there. Like I said, I would not recommend it, but if you have to do it that way, the people of Shandon are the ones to do it with. Mm. So tell us a little about the community that the church is in and how you reach out. Shandon is in Columbia, which is Mm -hmm. the capital city of South Carolina, and it is in the midst of the Bible Belt. (laughs) And so 
A core piece of Shandon's identity um, and a clear priority for Shandon is being a welcoming presence mm. and receiving and affirming everyone who wants to be a part of our church community. And that is a bit of a different message than many of the churches in mm. Columbia. And so we have actually claimed that and held on to that even more tightly in recent days mm. and just made sure that we are communicating in everything we say and do that we believe that God loves all people and we want to treat one another like we believe that's true. Mm-hmm. Jenny, I understand you like to use storytelling in all parts of the worship liturgy. Why is that important to you, and and how does it play out in a service? Storytelling is something I do all the time, Mm -hmm. not just in church, but in other parts of life. And I started to think about what it would be like to integrate storytelling into other parts of the liturgy. Mm -hmm. For example, the call to confession And so I experimented with that, and people received it very well. Um, And what I I started to do, particularly when I would lead liturgy every week, was find a story of a moment of grace Mm. I had experienced or witnessed in the past week. And I would tell the story in a way that made it clear that this was a recent story. And what started to happen is the people in church, they started to look for those stories in their own lives, Mm. and then they would tell me about them. And so it became this almost a teaching tool of moments where we see grace in life and remembering that and and sharing that with one another. Mm. You have an undergraduate degree in creative writing, and you write poetry and share it on social media. I love that. You focus mostly on the holiness that can be found in the everyday. How do you endeavor to convey that holiness? I think in some ways it was a matter of making a choice to look for it Mm. in the everyday. Mm -hmm. My initial goal was to write a poem a day. Mm -hmm. I have fallen dramatically short of that goal. (laughs) But that was the original intent. So it would be yet one more way I was noticing the holy and the Mm -hmm. grace that is around us all the time if we're able to catch notice of it. Mm -hmm. So it started as a spiritual practice of sorts. And I also, for the most part, not always, but for the most part, write about things that most people can relate to or have experienced. And again, just trying to help them see that those moments exist in their own lives, too. Mm -hmm. Shandon Presbyterian recently hosted an evening called Exploring Humanity, Poetry, Music, and Dialogue, exploring the intersection of the African-American community and mental health, which sounds powerfully helpful. What arose from that gathering? It was a tremendous experience. Mm. We had poems written by Dr. Frank Clark, who is a psychiatrist in Greenville, South Carolina. He used to be a member of Shandon. Um, He is a black man who expresses himself and the way that he is understanding what's happening in the world through poetry. And his poetry was set to music Mm. written by some local musicians and then sung by Johnny Felder, who is another black man in our community who has the voice of an angel. Mm. And so we had this beautiful intersection of art that was giving voice to what 
folks in the Black community were experiencing in particularly difficult moments Mm. in our country's life. And we didn't want it to be just about the art, even though it could have stood on its own beautifully. And so the music was performed, and then we had a panel discussion about the need to normalize and amplify mental health resources for the African-American community Mm -hmm. um, because the access to mental health resources is dramatically different. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was good to be able to name that. And both Frank and Johnny were able to share some personal stories about what that has looked like for them and what that's meant for them. Well, this is the final Sunday in Advent. How do you hope this season of preparation has been shaping us in these challenging times? In the midst of a season that always feels busier and busier, and in the midst of a culture which always, at least right now, seems Mm -hmm. more and more complicated, I hope that at least a part of our Advent preparation is taking the time to pause and take a breath and remember that there is goodness and light and holiness about to be birthed into this world. And hopefully we can hang on to that promise and let that spread into the rest of our days. Your sermon focuses on the gospel reading for this fourth Sunday of Advent, Matthew chapter 1. It's Joseph's story. Would you read it for us? From the Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. Jenny, as you prepared your sermon, what caught your spiritual attention in the passage? I suppose I was paying more attention to Joseph than I ever have since last Christmas Eve at Shandon, we had a children's pageant where, because of the pandemic, we had to change the way we did things, Mm -hmm. and we invited every child to pick a character in the nativity and just come forward when their character emerged. And our sanctuary was packed with excited children, and we had about 15 Marys and (laughs) 10 donkeys and 13 wise men and no Joseph. No one came forward to play Joseph, so I wrote Joseph on a piece of paper and held it in front of me and stood in for the role. And I suppose that made me curious about 
why we don't pay very much attention to him. (laughs) Well, Jenny, we look forward to hearing your sermon on this. It's entitled, Joseph, A Higher Righteousness of Love. Thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you. Tradition is a funny thing. It's human nature to cling to it. In a lot of ways, tradition is what makes us who we are. We gather in worship today because tradition tells us to. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Come into God's presence with singing. We light Advent candles all four weeks because tradition tells us to. The first Advent wreath appeared in Germany in 1839. A Lutheran minister working at a mission for children created a wreath out of the wheel of a cart and placed 20 small red candles and four large white candles inside the ring. Red candles were lit on weekdays and white candles were lit on Sundays. He adapted it from a Scandinavian practice that helped citizens remember that the long winters would come to an end, that the light would return. We use evergreens and liturgical colors now, but the purpose is still the same, to remind us that the light is on the way. And on Christmas Eve, the first carol we'll sing is, O Come All Ye Faithful. Or at least that will be the case at my church. And while there may be many good reasons for why that has become our habit, the honest truth is we keep doing it just because that's the way we've always done it. And it's funny, actually. I, too, am accustomed to that hymn opening Christmas Eve. That's how it was when I was growing up. But at my previous church in New York, they sang Once in Royal David City first. Now, that's a beautiful hymn with a beautiful message, and my heart would soar when the choir would sing it so angelically. But it honestly didn't feel like Christmas to me until after the sermon when we finally sang, O Come All Ye Faithful. There's no logic behind this. I know that. But traditions, despite a total lack of scientific evidence to back this up, traditions start to feel a part of us, almost as if they were wrapped up in our DNA. It makes me wonder what traditions you and your families have. I wonder which traditions you've always loved and which ones you've always endured. What things you love and what things you endure for the sake of love. Because that's the thing about tradition. The healthiest and holiest traditions are always rooted in a sense of deep and abiding love. Sometimes we forget that. Or at least sometimes I forget that. My first Christmas, apart from my family, my roommate and I decided we would have our own tree. We brought it home and wrestled it into the stand. And then, well, then there was a disagreement. 
I grew up with colored lights of all different shapes and sizes all over the tree. My roommate grew up with just a few white lights and silver tinsel. We both had very clear visions of how it was supposed to be, and those visions did not line up. That's why we need Joseph at Christmas. It's tempting to think we don't. He is not the part anyone gets excited about playing in the pageant. He has no lines. He seems to just stand there. My friend Emily has a five-year-old daughter, Clara. Emily is teaching her the Christmas story using a nativity set. The first time they set it up together, Emily asked Clara to name each of the characters. Now, Clara is a preacher's kid who has been in church school since before she knew what church school was. She knew Mary and Jesus. She knew the shepherds and the wise men. She knew the animals and the angels. But when Emily pointed to Joseph, Clara was stumped. Finally, she guessed, barn boy? Poor Joseph. But we really do need him. Because tradition is a good thing. It makes us who we are. But it can also be our undoing. And Joseph might be able to teach us about tradition, both its value and its cost, better than anyone else in all of Scripture. Joseph's life starts out in the traditional way, born and raised in Bethlehem, a small town outside of Jerusalem. At some point, his family moved 90 miles north to Nazareth. He came from a distinguished family from the house of David. He was a carpenter and he was engaged to marry. All of which is well and good until it isn't. Because, as Matthew puts it, before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then we hear, but her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. It's necessary here to remember that Joseph lived not only in a different time, but in a different culture. Not everything has changed about the way women are treated. Not enough, actually. But many things have changed. In the ancient world, pregnancy outside of marriage brought shame and dishonor upon everyone involved. In some cases today, this is still true. Sometimes but thankfully, not always. But again, Joseph, like every other person in the history of the world, Joseph was a product of the time and culture in which he lived. And he knows two things. One, Mary is pregnant. Two, it's not his. I think that's why Matthew tells us so quickly, in the very same breath even, that Joseph is righteous. He is well-schooled in the religious tradition of his time. And tradition taught that if a woman was accused of adultery, the matter was brought to the town elders. If it was determined that her husband was lying, he would be charged a relatively modest fee. But if it was determined that the charge was true— the woman would be taken to the door of her father's home, where she would be stoned to death. 
In so doing, the tradition of the law stated, you purged the evil from your midst. That's righteousness. Or that's what righteousness often was and still is thought to be. The purging of evil in order to pursue the good. Joseph could have put Mary to death. Tradition allowed for it. But Matthew tells us he was unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, and he planned to dismiss her quietly. That means Mary would escape with her life. I can't help but wonder, though, what that life would have looked like. Pregnancy is something that can only be hidden for so long, and she would be on her own, shamed and dishonored for being a single mother. Odds are good that in that time, in that culture, she and her child would not survive long. Or if they did, that survival would be painful and perilous. Such a decision could save Joseph, though. It would enable him to leave quietly. If Joseph had done this, we might not have heard the story of Jesus at least not the way it comes to us today. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? Of course we remember how Mary says yes. We, or at least I, tend to forget how Joseph has to say yes, too. We aren't told much of how his yes comes to be, only that he has a dream, a dream in which an angel visits him and says, Don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. She's going to have a child, a child conceived by the Holy Spirit, but you will be the one to name him. You will be the one to call him Jesus. So for those of you keeping tabs, a traditional holy family went out the window a good while ago. The vision of what their life was going to be and the vision of what is now in front of Joseph Those visions don't line up at all. The angel seems rather unconcerned by this, though. The angel simply says, She's going to have a baby, Joseph, and please raise it as your own. In those days, to name a child was to lay claim to that child's heritage and lineage. In other words, as another preacher puts it, Joseph is being asked to be willing to believe in the impossible, to claim the scandal, to adopt it and give it his name, to not only accept the whole mess, but to rock it tenderly to sleep in his arms. Joseph is a righteous man. No matter what choice he makes, he will still be righteous. But the angel is asking him to choose what has been described as a higher righteousness. That sort of righteousness is hard to come by because it's not righteousness that focuses on the law. It focuses on the bigger picture, and it always leans toward love, toward the well-being of others. It pays attention to how our attempts to be righteous can sometimes yield unrighteous consequences. 
It does not ask, What does the law allow me to do? It asks, What does love compel me to do? What will bring the most light and life into a situation? It is in this swirl of dreams and consequences that Joseph has to make a decision. He has to balance tradition and law on the one side and an angel of the Lord seemingly on the other. He has to think about how much one person can handle, what integrity means, and what the bounds of commitment really are, to say nothing of figuring out to whom or to what he is most committed. It is a lot to think about. It's a big question whether he will permit God to be born, whether he will stay in the midst of it all and give his good name to a scandalous child. That Joseph says yes to this just might be the biggest miracle recorded in Matthew's Gospel. It is certainly the biggest miracle you or I have the capacity to replicate. Because God is always coming to us in ways that allow us to say no. We want things to be the way they're supposed to be. We want life to be the way we've always imagined it. That's why Joseph might be the Christmas character we need the most this year, the one we strive to emulate most. Because Joseph reminds us that the truest and deepest tradition has very little to do with the right carols or the right color lights. The tradition that lies at the very heart of the Christmas story is the question the angel poses. Will you give your name to God's latest idea? Will you permit God to be born? Because that is still God's intention, to be born, to be with us, to be Emmanuel. Where else might that angel appear? To whom else might that angel whisper a scandalous invitation? In what moment might that angel tap on your shoulder or change your plans? Like Joseph, we will have to make a decision. Because the Christ child is waiting to be born. The Christ child is waiting to change the world. If only we will welcome him and make space for him in our lives. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but had no relations with her until she had born a son. And he named him Jesus. Amen. Our preacher today was the Reverend Jenny McDevitt, Senior Pastor of Shandon Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. For a free transcript of her sermon for the fourth Sunday of Advent, Joseph, A Higher Righteousness of Love, call us at 404-815-9110. That's 404-815-9110. Or write to us at Day 1, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia 30305. 
Please keep in mind that Day One depends on the financial gifts of faithful listeners like you. Send your year-end donation to Day One, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. We're grateful for your help. This is Peter Wallace. Next time on Day One, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus on Christmas Day, we're honored to have with us the Reverend Tim Bogus, Senior Pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Sarasota, Florida. Don't miss his meaningful Christmas message, In the Dark. That's next week on Day One. Day One preacher Jenny McDevitt shares some final reflections on her sermon today, Joseph, a higher righteousness of love. And Jenny, we do love our Christmas traditions, as you so beautifully explained. Few of our traditions, though, as you note, have anything to do with Joseph. He has no lines in the story. He seems to just stand there. But Joseph is righteous, well-schooled in the religious tradition of his time, and the righteousness of the law told him that he could have Mary put to death for becoming pregnant, obviously not by him, before they were even married. If he had done this, you say, we might not have heard the story of Jesus, at least in the way we have, which can be pretty mind-blowing. So Joseph had to make a difficult choice, albeit with the help of an angel. But I wonder if you'd say more about that difficult choice. What must this righteous man have been thinking? I have to imagine that Joseph was thinking through things in a a somewhat similar way that you and I might, Mm. thinking about what is in my best interest, because we are human and we cannot avoid that consideration, thinking about what's in his best interest, thinking about what is in Mary's best interest, and realizing that that there was no clear answer. Mm. And probably if he's if he was anything like I am, probably really just wanted someone to show up and tell him exactly what to do. Mm. But I think that when we are faced with what feels like a decision between two bad options, mm. the most faithful thing we can do is listen for where the angels might be whispering. And both of Joseph's choices would have been righteous, either put Mary to death according to the law or name the child, adopt him, care for him. That is, respond according to what you call a higher righteousness of love. That kind of higher righteousness, you said, focuses on the bigger picture and always leans toward love, toward the well-being of others. It does not ask, what does the law compel me to do? Rather, it asks, what does love compel me to do? what will bring the most light and life into the situation. But I'm wondering how we might emulate Joseph in our own lives, how we might apply this higher righteousness in the difficult choices we face. I think one simple thing that we can all do to hopefully make decisions that are on the side of love Mm -hmm. is to take a beat 
to mm. pause before we respond so that we are responding instead of reacting. Mm. I know sometimes yeah. my second instinct is more loving than my first. Mm -hmm. And so I have learned to stop myself for a moment, give myself just long enough to consider, is this the loving way to respond? And it's amazing that even just a moment can be enough for grace to mm -hmm. slip in. Jenny, what's one thing from your sermon today that you hope our listeners will carry with them in the days ahead? I suppose one thing I hope that people will remember is to pay attention to those whose voices might not be the loudest mm. and whose actions might not get the most attention. To remember that everyone has something to teach us and that God resides in every person if we are careful enough to look. Jenny McDevitt, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Day One is the voice of America's mainline Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Our program is recorded and edited by Donald Jones and produced by Peter Wallace. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on Day One and forever. Mm -hmm.